Today, I want to talk about words. I know you're shocked. <laughs> Me? Words? Any UU, much less any UU minister, talking about words is a bit like a duck talking about water. Carl Sagan talking about stars. Senator Mitch McConnell talking about obstruction. We UUs do like words. There's this old joke, it goes like this, for Christians, the word became flesh, and then you use turned that flesh back into the word. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that joke is dirtier in ancient Greek. But today, I want to talk about words, right? These old, dusty, dirty words, words that many of us you use find uncomfortable. Words that other people might use, words like sin and evil and stuff like that, God talk kind of words. I can see some of you squirming, reconsidering your decision to join us this morning. And don't worry, I wanna reassure you, I'm not gonna refurbish a traditional lexicon this morning. If you're interested in that project, I recommend my Tuesday night class, God talk. Today we're gonna to talk a, at a higher level, right? About why that project is important. We're going to do a little UU history, a little critique of UU culture, and suggest that there is some work that we are uniquely able to do. Whether we choose to do that work is, of course, up to us, up to you. Ready? Good, then let us begin. In the spirit of my friend, the Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, I invite you now to turn to your neighbor. Yes, that neighbor. You know I can see you. Turn to your neighbor and say to your neighbor, neighbor, neighbor. Oh, neighbor. oh neighbor, brilliant. Language is our superpower. Language is our superpower. Amen and thank you. Amen. You're hilarious. <laughs> There really is nothing like the power of language, and the language of faith, as Carl said, is, is peculiar, right? Fire and brimstone, human depravity, the infallibility of the Bible, that's stirring stuff. But what if I told you that 100 years ago, chances were really good that on any given Sunday, you probably would never have heard about any of that? Are you surprised? Until very recently, I was too. But 100 years ago, science and innovation and industrialization were transforming our world, our understanding of our world, and our relationship to it. And that carried over directly into the pulpit. Liberal modernist religion had emerged out of the 19th century with new tools to examine faith, tradition, and scripture. And the struggle to reconcile faith with science and the industrial age was hugely secularizing. For those of you keeping track, this is also when religious humanism was born. So what happened? Me, I blame Niebuhr. Any fans? Yeah. Reinhold Niebuhr, President Obama's favorite theologian, is the one who said, quote, the purpose of church is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. 
It's a good phrase, right? Maybe you've heard Reverend Carl use it. Niebuhr enters our story because of World War I. Like many preachers, Niebuhr couldn't make sense of the war. What was clear to him was that liberal religion had failed to save humanity from this new and devastating kind of war. And modernist progressive liberal religion, with its visions of human progress as onward and upward forever, could not explain the magnitude of his horror. And nowhere were their words adequate to condemn those who had so cheerfully, so foolishly, so blithely unleashed world war. So what became a a relentless indictment of American complacency, arrogance, and exceptionalism, Niebuhr reached for old words, words like evil and sin. Niebuhr was devastatingly good at his job, and liberal religion in the United States never recovered. Humanism, born between the two wars, singing its gospel of human progress, never had the chance to soar before it was pounded out of the sky by Niebuhr and his followers. In many ways, I think we are still in this old debate about words. Our faith, one of the few today that still unabashedly advocates for liberal religion, has had a devil of a time you'll pardon the phrase, promoting an alternative religion, an alternative vision, an alternative language of awe and reverence, one that can capture hearts and minds. Religious humanism, for example, that doctrine that centers human flourishing alongside a profound respect for scientific inquiry was remarkably intolerant of God talk. The 1933 Humanist Manifesto, the founding document that boldly sets out the principles and project of religious humanism, specifically rejects prayer, worship, and theism, even as it affirms a manly attitude as how best to meet the sorrows of life. Now, I should confess something. I am a religious humanist. That worldview informs my life, and it's why I am a UU minister as opposed to an Episcopalian priest. And it's worth stressing that my affinity isn't odd in UU churches. Since the 60s, humanism has been our dominant theology, at least in many UU churches, and it still is. As many of you know, I'm currently in search. I graduated seminary last May and was welcomed into preliminary fellowship uh, by the UUA in September. And you're allowed to applaud that. That's that's fine. fine. Thank you. Thank you. As part of uh, the process of finding a job, I've been reading something called congregational records. Anyone from our search team here this morning? Remember this process, right? These endless documents that we had to put together about who we are, what we want, and what we believe. These records are a kind of get-to-know-us document. And when congregations go into search, they share them with prospective ministers. I've read a lot of these documents in the last month. And something like 9 out of 10 of them make specific reference to humanism as their dominant theology. Many also mention that God talk, 
from the pulpit is problematic, and that, quote, too much of it would, quote, make people uncomfortable. Now, where things get really interesting is that a great many congregations also mention two aspirational goals. The first is around growth. It seems that every congregation wants to grow, and I think that's normal and good. You use talk a great deal about how ours is a message that many would find good and wholesome, helpful and meaningful, and finding a way to share that message with others is something we all want to do. Admit it, we're all pretty awesome, right? <laughs> right. And it would be awesome if our awesomeness was seen and taken up by more people. Clearly, there are a great number of folks out there that are you, you, and don't even know it yet. Right? I'm right. I know I'm right. The second aspiration many congregations have is around diversity. As many of you know, the typical UU church is not terribly diverse. There are some notable exceptions, including All Souls in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which my wife, the amazing Julia Jones, will be preaching about next month, so make a note in your calendar. But aside from a handful of these churches, people of color as a whole take up less than 10% of our pews nationwide. So, growth and diversity, that's what we say we want, and we want it without any of that God talk stuff. I'm gonna to suggest today that these two expectations may sit a bit at odds with each other. That there may be a great many people out there that love like we do, they just don't think or talk like we do. And that if we wanna reach them, connect with them, then maybe, perhaps, we have a bit of work to do here at home before our home may feel like home to those who might one day choose to join us. There are good reasons to take up this kind of work, and being more welcoming is only one of them. And in the spirit of foreshadowing, I'm going to mention both engagement and storytelling as two more, and we'll get to them shortly. To talk about welcoming, however, I want to first talk about code switching. Has anyone heard of this, code switching? Good, excellent. At a high level, for those of you who are unfamiliar, at a high level, code switching describes the way that people of a non-dominant culture can transition between a more familiar grammar and lexicon and the grammar and lexicon of the dominant culture. More simply, it's like the difference between how one might talk at home versus school, the bar versus the office, the job interview versus a town hall meeting with Mitch McConnell. <laughs> Many people of, code, uh, of people of color code switch between white speech and people of color speech, right? Black English is an example of this. Code switching is how someone can successfully navigate between two different affinity groups, or better, successfully connect and communicate with people that are not exactly like them. If I'm a code switcher, and I submit that we all are to some degree, uh, at least can be, the burden falls on me. If I know who you are, what group you belong to, it's up to me to respond to you in a way that will affirm you, that will build connection with you, that creates understanding with you, that creates welcome 
Think about it. What could be more welcoming than being heard? What could be more comforting to the afflicted than being able to speak a truth in your own words, using your own story and metaphor, and having one of us, a stranger, say, I hear you, and all of you is welcome here. Not much. We you use our intelligent people. It's true. It's true. Literally every survey tells us this. So here's the hope. By being a bit more adept at the language used by others, by outsiders, by people who don't look like us, by those would-be friends and neighbors, we hope to build and expand our beloved community with, maybe we can remove at least one of the barriers to homecoming. And again, just maybe, we could even grow larger and more diverse. Okay, about engagement. Did anyone catch the Golden Globes Awards last week? Anybody? Golden Globes? Who's a Hollywood addict? Anybody? No, just me. Okay, fine, fine, <laughs> fine. Comedian Rick, Ricky Gervais was widely condemned at that, after that event uh, for calling out Hollywood. In short, he noted that most of them work for huge media conglomerates with troubled track records around human rights. So any social critique from these wealthy and beautiful people would be hypocritical. He had a point, I think. One echoed by columnist Megan McArdle, not surprising given her conservative leaning, but in her comments, McArdle also asked, quote, is there anything less brave than supporting a liberal cause in a room full of fervent liberals. I'll confess, this comment landed on me pretty hard. I spend way too much time on Facebook posting articles and memes that support my wildly liberal viewpoint. Maybe some of you do too. You know who you are. But as we should all know by now, Facebook filters what each of us sees in order to present us with things that we will engage with and therefore maybe keep using the tool. Turns out we usually engage with stuff we like. The stuff we don't like, Facebook hides that. For liberals, that means they see liberal stuff. For conservatives, that means they see Conservative stuff. For independents, that means they see stuff about food. <laughs> the point I'm trying to, trying to highlight today is this. Do we only testify to our beliefs in front of other fervent believers? I was reminded of a 2001 sermon titled Toward a Humanist Language of Reverence, where the Reverend David Bumbaugh saw something similar. He wrote, how has it happened that we, who once seemed to set the agenda for religious discourse, now find ourselves increasingly on the defensive, if not engaged in a monologue? We have manned the ramparts of reason and are prepared to defend the citadel of the mind against a renewal of superstition to the very end. But in the process of defending, we have lost the vocabulary of reverence, the ability to speak of that which is sacred, holy, 
of ultimate importance to us, the language that would allow us to enter once more into a critical dialogue with others. What I hear is this. If social justice is one expression of our faith, and I believe it is, we might need to talk to someone other than ourselves. To afflict the comfortable, to tell the truth to power, to be in meaningful and, quote, critical dialogue with others, if we're going to go beyond those who violently agree with us, if we're going to create change by engaging with those who do not agree with us, it might help to know the language. Okay, storytelling. As the native author Thomas King wrote uh, in his book, The Truth About Stories, he writes, the truth about stories is that that's all we are. The truth about stories is that's, is that that's all we are. And if that's true, and I think it might be, it's a good, good tool, how we write those stories, it matters a great deal. In 2003, UUA president Bill Sinkford talks about this. In a rather famous sermon he delivered in Dallas titled, A Language of Faith, he wrote, religious language doesn't have to mean God talk. I'm not suggesting that we return to a traditional Christian language. But I do feel that we need some language that would allow us to capture the possibility of reverence, to name the holy, to talk about human agency in theological terms. That is the ability of humans to shape and frame our world guided by what we find to be of ultimate importance. Ultimate importance. As a humanist, I believe that if there is salvation being offered to humanity, I believe it will come from human hands and human minds. We may not be all there is in the universe, but we are all we have. And I believe we are all we need. It's a good story. The seven principles affirms that story. But is it the whole story? Maybe, maybe not. Reverend Sinkford writes that the principles, quote, frame a broad ethic, but not a theology. They contain no hint of the holy. No hint of the holy in our seven principles. That's provocative, isn't it? Now, I'm pleased to tell you that I've been asked to write the foreword to Reverend Carl's forthcoming book on that very topic, due to be published this summer, so keep an eye out for that. Thank you, Carl. But the question stands, are the principles the whole of our story? Is there more or not? Have we, you use, and our quest for justice and inclusion, for welcome and brave engagement, have we hollowed ourselves out? The Reverend Tandy Roberts, one of my seminary professors, reframed this for me by pointing to, quote, the holy question mark that sits at the center of our faith. She said, we are seekers, are we not? Searching for truth and meaning. You use draw a wide circle around that question mark, one with space for many seekers, and ready to be filled in with, or at least by, many different ways. 
We are UUs, atheists, humanists, agnostics, pagans, Christians, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists. These stories are our stories. And even if they are different, they are the stories we can use to fill in that empty circle. The Buddha said that there are 84,000 doors to the Dharma, and all of them are different. The Reverend, Forrest, the Reverend Dr. Forrest Church preferred the metaphor of the cathedral of the world, one filled with windows, each window with its own view on truth, each creating its own pool of light. He wrote, but the windows are not the light. They are where the light shines through. Language is a very special kind of window, isn't it? Even if it isn't the light itself. So as we turn to the close, I want to acknowledge that there have been many who have suggested that we you use, could use a different, new language. Without the history, without the baggage, without the damage and harm that comes from words like sin and evil, God and atonement, salvation and sacrament. Maybe we could. Maybe this project appeals to you. Theologian and activist Sharon Welch, in her essay, Return to Laughter, says that this is exactly what we are supposed to do. Theologian Anthony Pinn agrees. He wrote a whole book arguing for just such a project titled The End of God Talk, an African-American Humanist Theology. And while I commend those to you, I want to say that that window is totally open. I will also say that crafting a new language of reverence feels very much like taking my ball and going home. There already is a language of reverence, and one in wide use. Our refusing to use it, to reclaim it, to frame our stories with it, to use it as a tool to bend the arc of justice toward human flourishing, that is not engagement. Refusing means starting another monologue. Is that what we want? Niebuhr tells us that the purpose of church is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Niebuhr, our greatest critic. I believe we can use those words, that we can comfort those who have been afflicted by life and faith and welcome them in their diversity of thought and experience because we, you, use, know, and live the truth that we don't have to think alike to love alike. I believe that we can leave here and testify to our faith bravely in safe and dangerous places to afflict those that are comfortable in their wealth and privilege and hold them accountable to their own values, to their own stories. I believe we must tell our stories using whatever tools we can, whatever sources we, that call to us, because the truth is our stories are all that we are. In our faith, we celebrate the power of the word. We praise its power to heal. We are wary of its power to harm. We champion its power to forge connection, to frame aspiration, to name oppression, to create meaningful change in ourselves and in our world. Language is also 
a sacred treasure and a gift beyond measure. Language is our superpower. And as Uncle Ben told us, with great power comes great responsibility. May we use it responsibly, wield it boldly, and receive it joyfully. Amen.